0: Well, I, I didn't. Uh, I wasn't aware that today was the last day of the uh, Home and Garden Show here in Tulsa, um, but it's open till five. And at that Home and Garden Show, there's actually a model of one of these homes. Uh, so, if this afternoon before five, if you'd like to go and see one of those up close and personal, know that that opportunity is available to you. And Scott Burnett says that he has free tickets to get you in the door. So if, you, if, you, if you're interested in that, come to me and I'll be uh, the broker. I feel like a bookie this morning, but <laughs> but, uh, but we'll get you out there and we'll keep you informed week to week as to how we're doing and uh, raising the funds to uh, to get that done. We're looking at Jesus' last words as we kind of warm up for our, our Easter experience, uh, looking at his... Uh, Well, really, his passion is what it's called, the Passion of the Christ. The movie was titled, and that was appropriate. The passion refers to his heart driving him to do all that he did for us in that moment of sacrifice. Um, Jesus' last words paint a a masterpiece, really, for us. Um, The meaning of the cross, the work of his atonement the great cost of his redemption for you and I, the heart of God, what he was willing to do in order to reconcile us with our father uh, that was at work in his son. So, so let me ask you, If it, who, could, who, who could understand how the heart of God must have been broken? It was his plan that was being uh, walked out here on the cross. All of this was a play that he authored, but even so, this was Jesus' father, and Jesus was his only begotten son. Who could understand the kind of anguish, what it cost God to work our salvation for us on the cross? Mary could. Mary could because Jesus was her son too. There's something powerful about the bond between a mother and a son. I love the way Mel Gibson depicted it in The Passion of the Christ. Now, much of this is conjecture, it's speculation, but it's in the spirit, I think, of what must have happened. There's that scene where, where Jesus falls as a young boy and maybe skins his knee, and his mom runs to him and is there to comfort him and to pick him up. She was there for, for times of, of comfort. She was also there in times of joy. There's that scene where Jesus is in his carpentry shop and he's just built a table. And it's kind of a joke, really. Um, Most people aren't aware that tables in those days were not like the tables we sit in front of today, that they were actually uh, floor-level kind of tables, just maybe a, a foot or a foot and a half off the ground. And you wouldn't sit at the table, you'd actually sit on a pillow and eat the food over your shoulder. And that's how when the woman who comes and is weeping over Jesus weeps at his feet while he's at dinner, that explains why she didn't have to crawl under the table to pull that off. His feet were back behind him as he leaned and reclined towards the table. That explains how John, it says, in the upper room when he took that last meal, leaned back on Jesus' breast. See, It was a different kind of posture. And in the movie, Mel Gibson has him make a table... That's of the size that we eat at today, with chairs and so forth. And Mary's trying it out for the first time. Like, what is this? How, how is this possible? And we kind of get in on that joke. We know that's the way history's going. And nobody, you know, this is kind of a Forrest Gump kind of thing. Jesus didn't make the first upright t- table, but but anyway. <laughs> but anyway, it's fun to see Jesus with one of those moments with his mom, where he's just delighting in her amazement. With what he's done and who he is. Every son to some degree enjoys that kind of relationship with his mom perhaps. Those kind of tender moments, that kind of strong bond. There are times of joy in the ordinary things of life and countless times of tenderness. Jesus giving his mom a little smooch. How many moms have enjoyed that kind of affection from their kids? It's a a powerful, powerful bond. And there was a bond that couldn't be broken, even in the horrors of the cross. Mary is at the cross, there with only a few. In fact, there's only one disciple that's followed Jesus this far that's willing to risk association with the one who is being crucified by Rome, and that's his beloved disciple. In fact, in the book of John, John being that disciple never refers to himself by name. That's either a sign of humility or a sign of identification so that John, John never calls himself by name throughout the whole gospel of John. He simply calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. It's become his whole identity. And so it's not surprising that John tells us this story and that John is there along with Mary, his mother, and a few others that are there. The other Mary and Mary's sister who was Salome who we know was the mother of James and John. James and John also being cousins then of Jesus. So there's, there's family there. There's the closest of friends. Mary Magdalene is there. We start in verse 11 of chapter 20 of John. But Mary was standing outside. Uh, whoop. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Mary's in that verse too. Go back. Go uh, back. Um, a chapter, chapter 19, verse 25. Here it is. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but there were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, bunch of Marys. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. That disciple, of course, being John. When Jesus calls Mary, Woman, woman, behold your son, Packer, A great theologian says that that was actually, it doesn't come across in the English in the same way, but that was actually a a term of endearment. Gino was the word that was used, the same word from which we get the term gynecologist, gino. Uh, He he calls her by an affectionate term. It, It would be more accurately rendered dear woman. Dear woman, behold your son. Son, my disciple, John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple John took her into his own household. The bond between a mother and a son, I think, depicts for us the anguish of the cost of Jesus' sacrifice as the Son of God. Mary understands that and because we as human beings understand our mothers and perhaps some of us as sons have had those kind of relationships with our our mothers that that bond is one that's powerful and precious and treasured and even a world war ii general understood that how long has it been since some of you saw saving private ryan do you remember that do you remember what prompted that whole movie for saving private ryan it was the fact that Ryan had three other brothers, three older brothers who had recently also been sacrificed in the war. They had just died. And th- those in the notification pool that were sending out the notices uh, in, in order for loved ones to be notified of their loss uh, noticed that all three of these boys were, were, were gone, three sons of the same mother. How absolutely overwhelming this must have been. But then there comes news that there's a fourth son a last son that may still survive. And the general is asked, what will we do? And some people say it's too extravagant to go looking for this one guy amongst so many. Others will die just trying to find him. Then he reads a letter from Abraham Lincoln to a mother who had lost her son in a war years and years before. And everyone's head in the room bows as they realize something sacred is in the balance And the orders come to the front lines to go find that boy and bring him home to his mom. It's the whole basis for the story of that movie, which was Saving Private Ryan. Three sons sacrificed. There's one that may still be alive. To lose that last son, that's asking too much of any mother. To give his only begotten son That's asking too much Of any father But he did He did for me And he did for you There's a later scene in that same movie That depicts the same mother-son bond Do you remember that moment? It's a gruesome scene I'm not going to show it to you uh, it's a gruesome scene where, where one of that party that has gone looking for Private Ryan is shot in a, a firefight on their way trying to find him. And he's, the firefight is over and uh, he's now dying, mortally wounded in his buddy's arms. It happens to be their medic, so none of them know how to treat him. And so they're asking him, what can we do for you? What should we do? And he says, I could use a little more morphine. And they give him the morphine, and then moments later, it seems almost out of his head, from some deep place in his soul, he starts crying out, mama, 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 mama. He knows he's dying. And that's not just Spielberg and Hollywood. That's actually true to life. I read an article this weekend by a former medic during World War II and even in in Vietnam, who said that was often the two most things that were mentioned by boys who were in the throes of dying. And then those last moments of anguish were those two words, morphine and mama. Mama. They'd cry out for mama. Doesn't that make sense from someplace deep in your soul that, that one person who once you were out of the womb was the one that would save you from uh, a cold, indifferent, unresponsive world? from someplace deep in their soul. Mama. But that wasn't Jesus' cry from the cross. He wasn't calling out to his mother so that she would comfort him. He called her name from the cross so that he could comfort her. fully human son, and fully God, shows us the heart of God and the heart of this son for his mother and for the world he was saving in that moment. Robert E. Seraphin is the name of that medic whose article testified to the fact that those were the two words that soldiers most often cry out. I, I I feel it's important just for the balance of our understanding. This is not just some sentimental kind of mushy stuff. It's not compromising sentimentality. What's going on here? Jesus knows that he must die, and there atone for the sins of the world. If he does not do that, his mother will never know eternity with him in heaven. He, he knows that. He knows that's true not only for his mom, but it's true for all of us. He must go through with the cross. He must go forward. But I bet if there's anyone in that crowd that would protest his decision, it would probably have been Mary. Oh, son, please. Maybe she wasn't there in Gethsemane when he, from his own heart, had cried out, Lord, if there be any other way, knowing what was coming, all of this suffering... If there be any other way, Lord, let this cup pass from me. He was not a masochist. This was real pain that he was experiencing, so much so that in the nerves of preparing preparing for it, he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, which doctors will tell you is a sign of shock. As the body goes into that shock of that terror, Blood capillaries and under pressure burst near the sweat glands, and you can actually sweat, sweat mingled with blood in the anxiety of that. That's a real condition. Jesus faced the cross and all of its terror for our sakes. This isn't just sentimentality, Jesus loved her. Sentimentality is willing to be comforting It's willing to be uh, cuddly It's willing to be warm and fuzzy It's willing to send a Hallmark card But love will bleed for you Love will die in your place This isn't some kind of codependent people pleasing he, he wasn't fulfilling his mother's need. You know, You think she would have traded John for Jesus? Not in a million years Or Jesus for John, yeah, absolutely. She, she would have wanted Jesus is my point. But Jesus, knowing that her heart would be breaking over these days in grief, and knowing that he was the elder son, and by Levitical law, his mother was his responsibility, and even though he had other brothers that were in his family, that he could have relinquished this duty to, and to whom it would have usually fallen, nevertheless... They aren't there. In fact, we know from the Scriptures that at this point, his other brothers and sisters don't believe in him at all. They think that Jesus maybe has a, has a screw loose, that he's, he's losing his mind. He thinks he's God's son, for God's sake. We grew up in the house with this guy. What's going on with Jesus? But he knew that Mary... Would be devastated until Easter and there was one who would understand, someone who loved him as much as perhaps she did, her, his beloved disciple John. They could help each other through, they'd understand each other's anguish. Now, in some ways, what Jesus was doing was a dutiful act of provision. He was making sure his mother was going to be cared for. There were no pensions in those days. If a widow did not have a son, then to take care of her business needs and all that kind of stuff, she would likely become destitute in her widowhood. That's why in the Bible, over and over again, the most abandoned, the most destitute of all people are often called the widows and the orphans. Remember the widows and orphans. James said, James 1.27, and this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our Heavenly Father, that you would visit the widow and the orphan in their distress. James said that after he became a Christian. But at this point, he doesn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God. He thinks he's his crazy brother. In fact, Jesus actually comes back in resurrection form. In 1 Corinthians 15, if you read that chapter, you'll discover that one of those that Jesus appears to, it seems, solo, is his brother James. He came back for him too. But for now, for now, it's not just a, uh, an act of providing for his mom. I think it's more than that. I think it's a... It's a concern for comforting his mother for what, what lays ahead. Why didn't Jesus choose James, his other brother? Uh, well, one, James isn't there. How could he do that from the cross? Number two, James is not a believer yet. You can look it up for yourself. 1 Corinthians 15.7 may have been the turning point when he sees them in resurrection form. Maybe his other brothers weren't ready. Maybe they were too young. Maybe they weren't making a way in this world as yet and couldn't have given her the shelter of provision that she needed. But most of all, his other brothers would not grieve his loss the same way his mom would. Not like John. And here we come across one of the greatest truths of Christianity, and that is When God worked in Jesus Christ to reconcile us to the Father, his great sacrifice not only gave us back to God, it gave us to each other. From the cross, Jesus is not only reconciling humanity to a holy God through his sacrifice for our sin, he is also at that moment weaving humanity In relationship to one another with his redemptive love at the core of it all. Let me ask you today in our city who's the widow? Who's the orphan? The widow are those that are underprovided for scripturally, the orphan is the one who has been abandoned. And like I said, in Springfield, I learned from the founder of the Eden Village that one of those most profound misunderstandings he had of the homeless community is that they were like everyone else, only without a home. He discovered that in almost every single case of the friends that he made in the coffee shop, they were completely estranged from family, totally isolated, abandoned, somehow unable to take care of themselves and no one to turn to. Part of the solution to homelessness is a shelter. But that only gets at the surface problem. A deeper problem may be that these people have been abandoned. They're no longer a part of community. They don't have a community of mutual care. They're community-less, not just homeless. And that's why I love this Eden Village, Eden, uh, yeah, Eden Village approach. Because it approaches not only the surface need, but also maybe one of the core needs beneath that, that need for community. It makes housing and shelter affordable. Once this homeless person comes off the street, they get on government subsidies if they're not on them already. And an affordable rent is charged them so that this house is not free, though it's mostly a gift. For $300, $350 a month, they continue to sustain themselves there. It's a safe environment like they've never known, a drug-free environment, a place where they're mutually respected by other neighbors who understand where they come from and encourage each other in that path. They mutually welcome one another into the community as new people come into it and as those, a few of those that graduate from it in their little 15-by-30-foot homes. They, they have competitions each month for, 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 for whose yard and whose house will win House of the Month get to put their sign out in, in, in front of that place that they now uh, live in with a sense of self-respect. It's livable. It's sustainable. And perhaps most importantly, it, it restores dignity. Now, there's one of those homes. Well, I think we actually went in this one. This is a picture of it on the inside. Now let, let me ask you, if, if, if you had a son or a daughter in a distant city and they were homeless, what kind of solution would you want for them? Would it would it just be a, a night-to-night scramble for whatever shelter might be open? Or, or would it be a place from which they could come to live as dignified human beings? They could come to be neighbors with one another. Here's a picture of the next one of, of a couple that's now formerly homeless that share that is their home. They're kind of the welcome wagon for the community. As others come in, they're there for them to help them feel at home and adjust to this totally different way of living for them, to help them overcome their, their apprehensions and their distrust. And start to trust one another as they are empowered to be good neighbors to one another. It's a beautiful thing. Not just to see somebody in a home, but to see a life restored. Recently in Springfield, there was a... Remember those... We've had a couple tough winters. And during one of those cold snaps in a present previous winter there were days where it didn't get above freezing at all even during the daytime do you remember that hard winter it went about seven or eight days most of you had to replace shrubs in your front yard and pipes burst and all that kind of stuff even around same thing was going on in Springfield and people were dying on the streets it was so cold the city sent out a a bulletin that anyone who had a place that could open up for the homeless it would save a life but there were just no places and so they contacted the owner of Eden Village who himself is just a volunteer he said well I, I don't have the manpower, it's just me I don't have the manpower to, to host a bunch of people in our community center but word got out to the rest of the Eden Village and they volunteered they'd take care of them send all you can we'll keep them warm we'll keep them fed, we know what they're going through it's a beautiful thing when the waves of God's restoration are shared by people who have known His love, Jesus gave John and Mary far more than just a provision for their future, He was also interested in their comfort. That they would not, in their grief, become isolated, but they would continue to heal one another in those precious bonds of community. John, loving Jesus could better love Mary. And Mary, loving Jesus, could better love John. Now, I don't know a whole lot about Mary's personality, but if she's like most moms, I know quite a few moms that come alive not so much when they're nurtured as when they get to nurture. You know some moms like that? That when the kids come home and they can make a meal, they can fluff a pillow, they come alive. David's here this morning. I think your mom worked 10 hours yesterday getting the house ready. No joke. There's something about a mom's heart that comes alive when she can flow in that kind of nurture. How helpful must it have been for Mary to just get through those next few days, much less the next years of her life without Jesus physically with her any longer, To know that she had a son still to take care of. I think Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was setting them up to be community with one another with their love for him at the center of it. Now that doesn't describe just Mary and John. That describes us, doesn't it? Loving one another because we've been loved by Christ, and we understand that kind of love, and we long to give that kind of love to one another, not just because one another may or may not be deserving of it, but because he's deserving of it. Mary and John then become models of what it means really to be good family with each other. Not just good family because of blood, kinship, but good family Because we share the same heavenly father. Jesus put it this way. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Who then can be saved, Lord, if we have to give it all? Who's up to that? Jesus says, well, with men it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And then Peter turns to Jesus and says, but but Lord, we've left everything to follow you. As if, what's in it for us? This is his answer. The promise of good family. Truly I say to you, Jesus said, There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake. Here's the promise, but that he shall receive a hundred times now, in this present age, houses and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and farms, along with persecutions, and in the world to come, eternal life. Well, there it is, folks. The real prosperity gospel. But he shall receive a hundred times as much now, in this present age, He's not talking about the rewards of the sweet by and by. He's saying that this blessing is available here and now for those who will receive it. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. Do you realize you've got a house on almost every corner in Tulsa? There's that many churches in this place. And wherever you go to any one of them, if Jesus is Lord in that place, you just stepped into the home of your heavenly Father. A hundred times. If Jesus was thinking about Tulsa, he undersold that deal. Houses, brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. And along with persecutions, it's not all sunshine. Sunshine. I often tell people, you know, in our small groups, church as it is, that one of the great blessings of this place is we really get to know each other. And one of the big challenges of this place is we really get to know each other. Right? But it's worth it. It's worth it loving each other through all of our idiosyncrasies. And, you know, it's one thing to... Have forgiving one another is just a concept in, in the Bible. It's another thing to live close enough to someone that that's necessary. <laughs> and in today's world, we're so isolated. We often so lack community. Sometimes even in churches, it's a come and go from the anonymity of the crowd kind of thing. We, we never become family like this depicts the blessing of spiritual family. But may it not be so in this place. We invite you into this family of God. Jesus is describing the church as the church should be, a place where we love each other. And we love each other deeper because our love is not just our own affections for one another, whether or not we find each other likable. Our affections for one another are based in something far more stubborn than that. It's the love of God living in us and living through us. I love you, not just because I like you. I love you because Jesus died for you. My Lord, my Savior, the one that's most important to me, finds you most important. You're worth loving. And anybody who knows Jesus ought to know that. With every single human being we ever lock eyes with on this planet, you see, you look into the soul of someone for whom your Savior died. And that ought to transform how we relate to one another. We love each other deeper. We love each other redemptively. We love each other resiliently. And it's not that sentimental, oh, hallmark stuff, (laughs) It's the stuff that gets you through life, people. Because we love people, this place can be a refuge and a house of God. His last words. How do they become our next steps? I'd like to suggest three quick things for you. One is remember that cross-bearing love, our Christ kind of love, when it lives within us, If we follow His lead here, we need to pay attention and remember that kind of cross-bearing love with those who are most abandoned. We've talked about that with this with this homelessness uh, project of building this home by April by April two to come up with twenty five grand. Let me put it this way. We, we have a provident fund in a church And occasionally we'll get a call Or we'll, we'll discover someone Who is homeless and in trouble And we'll put them up for a night Sometimes in a hotel And usually the cost of that Is at least 50 sometimes $75 a night In fact in the last 10 years I don't know when it's been below $75 a night Not in Broken Arrow or in South Tulsa Just one night Now this home that we will build in a decade of sheltered nights that it will provide will not cost us $75 a night. It'll come to cost us $7 a night. And it won't just provide a place to sleep one night and then be abandoned the next day. It'll give the gifts of dignity and community like we've already talked about. One night... At a time, for 10 years, if we put someone up in one of those hotels, it would cost us 275,000 dollars. This will cost us 25,000. And it'll do that work for all that time. The exact number is 273,750. Chip, I did the math. But we need to remember with our cross-bearing love, not only those that are most abundant but our own biological fa- uh, families, those that are closest to us, just like Jesus did from the cross. My wife's told me about a Bible study she's been involved in with the other ladies of our church by Ann Graham Lotz, in which Ann Graham Lotz gets really, really vulnerable and real in her sharing. And she says that even though her dad was a great evangelist, she experienced him mostly as an absent dad. She's talking about Billy Graham, and of course, that's tragic, that's heartbreaking. But folks, when it comes to balancing the great priorities of life, that's always difficult, and all of us make mistakes, and all of us have regrets. But I wonder if from heaven's perspective, that is a regret for Billy Graham, because in 1972, when he was away from Ann Graham Lots for a weekend, he was getting me saved at Atlanta, Fulton County Stadium with thousands of others. It's sometimes complicated how to balance all these priorities. Jesus understands that. He's, he's going to die for a lost world. He's working towards the atonement. He's only got the whole world on his back, but from his cross, he notices his dear mom, and he takes care of her to Remember those in your biological family. Folks, remember those in your spiritual family. Who is my family, Jesus said? Who is my father and my mother and my brother? It's whoever does the will of my heavenly father. Anyone who claims your father as their father is someone that's worthy of the sacrificial love of God even if it costs us like it cost him so this morning God we remember these words of your son from the cross we remember that great gift of the cross is not just giving us a relationship renewed with you and reconciled to you it's given us a new kind of opportunity, of relationship with one another, one that can heal our homes, one that can heal our churches, one that can heal our cities. And so, Father God, we pray that in us today that ripple effect of your love will continue. Help us to leave this place loved and living loved Father, give us fresh power to love those around us. Help us to live from the power and in the power of your love from the cross for each and every one of us. In your holy name, Lord God, we pray, we give you praise, we receive, we receive the outpouring of your love this morning. Come, Holy Spirit, work in us afresh in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And from our hearts, we give you this last song of the morning in praise as we stand under our feet in honor of the, of the King that lives in our midst. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship the King.